So this morning, we are talking about the law. Law. Now, just that word itself, it commands a kind of ambivalence in us, doesn't it? A kind of almost fear in us. I'd like to begin with actually a story of an experience I had with the law many, many years ago. And it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's kind of funny, so I I share it with you for your uh, edification. (laughs) So I had just begun serving at my first church to which I had been called as a young pastor. I was living in North Delta at the time, and the church that I was serving is in Vancouver. And so I had this routine of driving from North Delta to Vancouver every Sunday morning. And uh, I had just begun, as I said, this this routine a few weeks ago. And that Sunday morning, I was under pressure, I was under time constraint, and so I was driving from Delta to Vancouver. And if you've driven that route, there's this highway, this east-west connector that you have to take, and before you get to that highway connector, there's this bridge you have to cross called the Alex Fraser Bridge. Before you get onto that bridge, there is this connector called the Nordell Way, which takes you from North Delta to that bridge. This long kind of connector going down this hill, nice and wide and well-paved, and no traffic on a Sunday morning. And so I was under pressure, under time constraint, and I was speeding down that hill. So by the time I got to the bottom of the hill and started to make my way onto the bridge, Suddenly, a police officer leapt out in front of my car, pointed at me, pointed towards the side of the road, asking, directing me, commanding me to pull off to the side of the road. I'd been speeding. I was caught speeding. So how embarrassing was that? Pastor, on Sunday morning, (laughs) caught for speeding. Now, the church that I was serving in uh, has a tradition of wearing vestments on Sunday morning. So I was dressed in my black uh, collared shirt, <laughs> white collar, black shirt, black suit. And so my palms are sweating, my heart is pounding as this police officer is coming. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to say as he comes? So I rolled the window down as he came, and I said, I said I'm so sorry, officer. I know I was speeding. I'm sorry. And he took one look at me. He said, Father, (laughs) do you know how fast you were going? And I knew that moment was not, I was not Catholic, and I never contemplated being Catholic, but I knew that was not a moment to discuss the finer points of Catholic versus Protestant theology. And I just said, I'm sorry, this is kind of a congregational emergency. And he, he, his face actually softened when he saw, saw me, and he believed, I mean, he, I mean, who would dress Sunday morning like that unless they were actually going to church? But he says, I'm going to let you go. Um, and he even gave me some pointers about how to avoid speed traps. <laughs> so... My run-in with the law, and I know, actually, I'll let you know that I've never gotten a speeding ticket since then. So, the law, though, the story, really, the point is, we have this kind of ambivalence, these mixed feelings about the law, don't we? In fact, uh, when we started planning this series, uh, Tim McIntosh had these eight words that that we were going to go through. 
uh, at the, this is at the end of summer as we were planning, planning, the, planning all of this, and I said to the preaching teaching team, um, let's do this together, and you guys pick one of these words that you want to do, and I'll take the rest. And of course, what was left over was the law. <laughs> so, we have our assignment for us today, which is to understand Torah and law. And I want to use that word in particular, Torah, instead of the law, because actually in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Bible, Torah is different than our understanding of law. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, because when we think about law today, we have this kind of fear of the law, which was not present, not in the same way in the Old Testament and to the Jewish people in terms of Torah and what that meant for them. And so the title of my sermon is Torah, Path to Obedience. And here's my outline for today to let you know where I'm going. We're going to use Psalm 119 as our text, and we're going to launch off from there to various other themes and texts. But first of all, I'd like to cover the main question, which is what is a right posture, a right biblical posture for us to Torah. What is a right posture for us to take as believers to Torah? Second, I'd like to provide some reasons for that posture because as we come to that reasons or to, the, to that actual first question, I think we'll, we'll sense some difficulty about adopting that kind of posture that the, the psalmist does. So I want to provide, with, uh, provide us with some more reasons for adopting that posture. Third, I want to talk about some of the roadblocks or some of the hindrances in terms of us uh, really, really taking to heart this kind of posture to Torah. And fourth, I want to look at the resolution, especially from the New Testament, from a Christian perspective. What is the Christian resolution to these roadblocks in terms of our understanding of Torah? Okay, so... First of all, right posture to Torah. Now, the Hebrew word for law is Torah, as I have mentioned. And the word in English, as I have alluded to, is actually kind of inadequate for our purposes as we think about what law is. Partially because in our society, in our culture, what law connotes is legal, legal system and all the legalities that are bound up with the law, like lawyers and judges and a system of rules and laws, a body of laws that we must obey if we're not on the wrong side of the law. But Torah, and actually, it does not have that same sense of meaning in the ancient world. In fact, Torah has a much more generic kind of meaning in Hebrew, it can mean this, uh, direction, instruction, decision, and only later on in the Greek Old Testament does it really be translated as the law, namos. And this has actual uh, cultural significance, which I'll mention in a little bit later. But the, the word Torah actually comes from yara in Hebrew, which means actually to throw. And it's this motion of throwing or casting or directing. And in fact, this is what Hebrew scholars think, that actually this motion is where that, that, that uh, origination of the Hebrew meaning for Torah started, 
because it's this motion of pointing someone and directing someone somewhere, giving them guidance. This is where you should go. And so that's where this develop, this, the meaning of Torah develops, that this direction, instruction, guidance. So it's different than a, a body of rules and commandments that we must follow, isn't it? So I just want you to begin thinking about Torah in that sense, guidance, instruction, not so much legality and formal proceedings and judges and so forth. Okay, let's turn to Psalm 119. Now, as you know, Psalm 119 is a poem, and it's a very, very long poem, and we're not going to cover the entire psalm today, thankfully. Uh, Psalm 119 has 176 verses, Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the poetics, that is the structure of the poem, because it tells us something about what the psalmist thought about Torah. Psalm 119 is all about Torah, all about the law of God, and it's a celebration of Torah. So there's 22 stanzas of, in Psalm 119. Each of them stand for one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So each stanza has eight lines or eight verses, and each of those eight verses and each of those stanzas begin with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph all the way to Tav, goes through systematically Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and so on, every single letter of the Hebrew alphabet until Tav. And every single one of these stanzas has eight verses. There's this symmetry, there's this order, there's this beauty even to this psalm. And then there are eight different words for Torah, including the word Torah, that are used as almost like synonyms Uh, just giving different emphasis on what Torah is. So Torah, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules. And then one word is word, which we translate as word. And another word is word, again, which we translate as word. But there are different words in Hebrew. All these different words, really, that essentially are talking about the same thing, which is God's law, Torah. So just looking at the poetics of this psalm, actually it teaches us a couple of different things, I think. First of all, that Torah is expansive, 176 verses, right? It's extensive. It touches on all of life. And second, that there is this order to it, right? Aleph, Beit, Gimel, and so on, eight verses, every single letter, 22 stanzas, there's this order to it, to Torah, okay? Now, here in uh, this next slide, uh, I just want to show you like all the different words that are used. So who walk in the law, that's Torah of the Lord, keep his testimonies, you've commanded your precepts. And then the next slide, your statutes, your commandments, your rules, your righteous rules, your statutes again, all these various words for the law of God. I think that says something about also just how important Torah was. They have all these different expressions for the law of God, and each of them means something slightly different. Now, One of the really interesting things about Psalm 119 is that if you look across the entire psalm, 
and all the different themes that are in Psalm 119, what is really interesting and almost a little bit disturbing is that it treats Torah almost, or speaks about Torah almost the same way that the psalmist will speak about God. So elsewhere in scripture, wherever someone is speaking about God, elsewhere in the Psalms, elsewhere in scripture, you can almost replace the word the Lord, Yahweh, and the word God with Torah in Psalm 119, and you get the same kind of a sense. So the language is used of Torah that elsewhere is used of God. So, for example, the psalmist clings, clings to Torah in the same way that the psalmist would cling to God. The psalmist trusts in Torah. He hopes in Torah. He believes in Torah. He loves Torah. He fears Torah. He seeks Torah. He even raises his hands to Torah in prayer and perhaps even in praise of Torah. All these, you can read these, in these verses in uh, Psalm 119. And perhaps this, this verse uh, may symbolize all of these themes. Oh, how I love your Torah. It is my meditation all the day. And that may remind you of another psalm, Psalm 1, a famous psalm, of course. Blessed is the one who, talk, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, the Torah of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. There are three psalms which really are Torah-oriented or law-oriented. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and then Psalm 119, which we've been using as our launch pad, the main text. I think you will see, I think you will understand my point now when I say, what is the main, what is the right posture that we should approach Torah with? The answer to that question is one of delight, one of joy, and ultimately one of obedience. One of joy, delight, and obedience. Right? Torah and God, almost in the same realm. Now, how does that feel to you as you hear me read out this verse? Oh, how I love Torah. I know there's this beautiful song, Oh, how I love the, uh, your law. It is my meditation all the day. And it's a beautiful song, and we sing it all the time. But music aside, how does that feel to you as you say, Oh, how I love your law? Honestly. Like, if I'm honest and I think about that that, that, that phrase, oh, how I love your law, I have to admit that, uh, again, there is a little bit of ambivalence in me. I'm not 100% comfortable saying, oh, how I love your law. And I think partly it's because of what I mentioned about the legality of our society and the law representing something a little bit different than what it represented to the Hebrew people. So I want to give us some reasons why we should adopt this posture that the psalmist is adopting. 
So I can think of at least three reasons why the psalmist adopts this attitude, this posture to Torah. The first I've already alluded to has this connection. There's this connection between Torah and order. Torah and even beauty, and Torah and even creation. So reading Genesis 1-1, we hear this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then what does God do in creation? He separates the light from the dark. And then he separates the waters above from the waters below. And then he separates the seas from the land and creates these domains, these spaces, by creating order. There is this parallel between God's power and creation in creating the world and separating out chaos into order, and then God's word in Torah in upholding social order, social harmony, that in the same way that God wants to provide order and beauty in this world out of chaos, he also wants to provide order and beauty in human existence, human relationships. That is a part of what Torah is about. And as I mentioned, Psalm 119 and 119 are these Torah psalms, and especially Psalm 19 connects Torah with creation. And we don't have time to go into that in detail, but just know that there is this connection between law, Torah, and creation. Okay, that's the first point. The second reason, and I discovered this this past week in my in preparation and reading for this, so it's, it's brand new for me too. It's actually quite an exciting discovery. We, like I said, we think of law as this kind of body of rules and regulations, but in the ancient world, they actually didn't have these collections of rules and, and legal uh, laws and proceedings because that was just not their system. That was not their society. So what we do have a lot of, however, are collections of wisdom. And wisdom is different from law because what wisdom is, is a, a body of literature which gives you guidance for life. And what this wisdom literature is meant to do is show you examples of how to live so that you might live abundantly and enjoy and be blessed in life the way that you are meant to, the way that God intends for you to. And in fact, Old Testament law, Torah, has much closer affinity to as a genre, as a kind of, a, a kind of body of literature to wisdom than it does to our understanding of law. Does that make sense? And for me, that was really life-giving because actually Torah is not meant simply as this body of rules to follow. Either you're following law or you're kind of against outside of the law, but really it's a, it's a set of principles for wise living and for, for really flourishing in life. Now, there are, of course, boundaries that God puts in place in that we can set our sides outside of those boundaries but as a first understanding, 
Law is meant to be something that's life-giving and a direction for life rather than is something that is cold, hard, and setting our sides rather uh, either inside or outside of. We can get excited about something that is life-giving, but it's hard to get excited about something that's a cold, hard set of rules, right? The third reason for this delight and this joy in Torah, uh, this is probably the most important reason, I think, is a connection between Torah and the giver of Torah, the source of Torah. And so always in the Old Testament, and in this psalm included, there's this deep connection between Torah and God. Because Torah comes from God. And so it's always the Torah of Yahweh. It's his testimonies, his ways, your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, your righteous rules, as we had read out to us in Psalm, uh, the first eight verses of Psalm 119. It's Torah from God. It's God's Torah. And so what this is, is that it is relational. Mike talked about covenant uh, a few weeks ago in one of these important ancient words. That's what this is. Torah was the covenant agreement that Israel entered into with Yahweh. It's, it's kind of like marriage. Now, when people get married, they come to the altar, and what happens to this couple? What do they do? They make what? Vows to each other. They have this, these promises that they speak to one another. Now, those vows are not meant to be cold, hard rules that you must follow, right? Well, hopefully you will follow them to love, to cherish, until death do us part. But the vows really represent the relationship of love that this couple is entering into. And that's what covenant is. And that's what Torah is. Torah is the substance of that covenant that Israel is entering into with God. God has already initiated this relationship with them. He's saying, I will be your God. I will bless you. I'll protect you. I'll guide you. I'll rescue you from Egypt. And you follow my instructions, follow my directions, my Torah for life, and you will be blessed. You will continue in this land into which I'm bringing you. Oh, how I love your law. It brings beauty. It brings order. Oh, how I love your law. It is wisdom, it is teaching, it is guidance for life. Oh, how I love your law. It's relationship with Yahweh, with God himself. But I, I feel like there are still some roadblocks to our proper understanding of, of Torah. And uh, some of this, uh, I need your indulgence because I have to do a little bit of a history lesson here to really help us appreciate uh, some of our, our own cultural and even theological baggage. So, um, first of all, uh, do you guys know who this is on the screen? Anyone? Martin Luther, yes, Martin Luther. Uh, part of my tradition is Lutheran, so, so I don't know, I have mixed feelings about Luther. But anyway... <laughs> What happened was, uh, in the 16th century, because of the abuses and corruptions of the Catholic Church, one of the reformers, uh, well, one of the preeminent reformers was Martin Luther. And 
part of what, what, what he was really wrestling with was, how do I find a God of grace? How do I find a gracious God in the face of all the corruptions and abuses in the 16th century, and the Catholic Church also recognizes them today? What was going on, Luther was thinking, how do I find a gracious God? And he went back to scripture, reading them in its original language, and which wasn't that common back then. And he was going through Romans, and he discovered that God is not a God who is demanding my, my performance and uh, my work uh, to achieve salvation, but God really is a God of grace. And I, I, I get into this relationship with God through faith. But part of what happened was he said that there is therefore an antithesis, an opposition between the law and the gospel. That the law is all about how to earn salvation and earn favor with God. But the gospel is something that is free, that is grace-initiated, that is grace-bound. And so law is on one side, gospel is on the other and so the only thing that the law is really good for, actually, is to help us understand our need for God. And the only thing that the, the, the law is good for is bringing us to our knees in fear and trembling. And then, therefore, we come to God in prayer and in faith. Now... This understanding of law versus gospel, today we understand that actually the 16th century was a certain context as well, and that Luther had his own context, and that this probably is not the best way to understand the law, the Old Testament law, in terms of what is actually going on in Scripture. And so most scholars have moved away from this law versus gospel kind of dichotomy. And I know this is a very theologically complex issue, and I don't want to get into all the intricacies of it. But I, I do align myself with the, that body or those, uh, uh, those scholars who say that actually law and gospel are not meant to be antagonistic like this in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. A better way to think about the law, really, as, as Paul kind of says in, I think it's Galatians, that, that the law was a guardian until Christ came. The law is kind of like this channel, this intermediate stage in which God was giving his people as a blessing to kind of carry them to the true understanding of what he wanted with them, which is this relationship through his son, Christ Jesus. The law is good because it provided that channel, but Jesus is even better because it is his son. He, that's his son that we're talking about. So law and gospel are not really intended to be opposed to one another like that. Okay, that's one hurdle. Uh, the second hurdle, I think, that we that we experience in, in our appreciation of Torah is legalism. And uh, this is uh, one of the dangers of, of emphasizing Torah over and against God, outside relationship with God. And so 
And again, the scholars believe that uh, part of this movement of Psalm 119 was really kind of to elevate and to even celebrate law, but without this close relationship with God. And so part of, what that, part of that actually came to fruition in Jesus' day in the Pharisees in which uh, there was this great understanding of Torah, but Jesus says, well, what is actually Torah pointing to? God, and sometimes you've forgotten about that. And he had some very hard words for some of the Pharisees. And so when we divorce Torah, from God, we get legalism. But we have to remember that Torah and God uh, are held together indivisibly. The third roadblock, I think, and maybe the most important one for us, is the failure of Torah, the failure of law. And when I say that Torah failed, I mean, actually, Torah can't really fail. It's a guide, it's instructions, it's directions. So Torah is not really personal in that sense, is it? What can fail, though? People. Failure actually is not in Torah. The failure is in the human heart to keep Torah. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament history that the prophets would call out to Israel to come back to God, to follow and keep Torah in the way that they had promised. And, I mean, it's also evident today in the Israel-Gaza conflict, um, Torah fails in the sense that it cannot contain the chaos of humanity that is in the human heart. Just a small example of that. I mean, like, you, I think some of you know that my window was broken uh, in the parking lot. I, I come out after church, after my office hours, and I come out, and I sense that something is wrong. I know that actually what happened was someone broke into my, my window and grabbed a backpack that was there. Just the chaos in this world. Torah, law, cannot actually contain it is not capable of it. I mean, the intention is right, the ends is right, but the means is not adequate to the ends. And so what is the resolution? What is the solution to these failures, to these roadblocks, to our appreciation of Torah, of law as God would have it? Well, come the New Testament, uh, I think the clearest example is, is is the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus preaches on, you know what he's talking about there is Torah, actually. And he's re recapitulating Torah. He's actually teaching about the law. And what he teaches about regarding the law, actually, it's not that revolutionary. It's not that different from what has actually already been heard. It is because it's so clear now, he's linking the human heart with human behavior in a way that's, that's really clear. But that is actually not the most revolutionary thing that he says in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches about Torah. The most revolutionary thing that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount 
is not the content of the Torah, but the source of the Torah. He says, you've heard that it was said. That means in the Old Testament, in Torah, in the oral law around the Torah. You've heard that it was taught. You've heard that it was said. But what? But? But I say to you, again and again and again, it says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, but I say to you, you've heard that Moses said from God on Mount Sinai, but I, Jesus of Nazareth, now say to you, the authority no longer rests in revelation of Torah from God. The revelation now rests in Jesus, the person. He is now the source of wisdom, the source of life, the source of right living. And he's just reinterpreting Torah and saying, this is how it says in the Old Testament, and he's connecting it with the heart. And he's saying, now I am that source of life the source of Torah. The solution, the resolution, is actually a person. It's Jesus. Jesus says, I am the solution. And then he invites his hearers, his disciples, and all those who would be disciples to understand who he is, to receive who he is, to accept who he is by faith, that he is the one that he claims to be, the one who is the fulfillment of all the promises of old, the promises of the prophets, the fulfillment of all of history, human history, comes to climax in this one person, Jesus. He is a fulfillment of Torah. And this has been my experience, and I think it's been the experience of many of us here, that as we walk with Jesus, as we continue to commune with him, then he becomes more and more real to us, and he becomes more and more alive in us. And uh, I want to leave you with um, one more feature of this psalm, Psalm 119. It is this emphasis on walking the path walking the path. So one of the ways that, that the Old Testament scriptures really um, illustrate obedience to Torah is this image of walking. Walking on the path, staying on the path. Even the word keeping really has to do with the image of a shepherd kind of keeping uh, animals uh, within a certain range of this path. And so walking in the way of the Lord is really the, the sense of how we obey the Lord Jesus. And if you've uh, walked on a trail before, hiked a trail in the woods, uh, you know that uh, there's lots of, uh, lots of distractions, potential distractions. You wander off of that trail at any time. Um, and some of those distractions may be very quick, and you can come back to the, the path, come back to the trail, and it's not too bad. But some of those off trails may lead you a ways away from the trail, and it may be very, very difficult to come back from. So this is a sense of walking 
and obedience, the law of the Lord. And I think, uh, as I mentioned, that as we get to know Jesus, as we continue to invite him into our lives and submit to him and listen to him, that he creates something in us. He changes us over the years, day by day, that as we submit our lives to him, he actually makes us want to walk the path, want to obey him, want to want him in our lives. He changes our hearts, and that's the solution to the problem. So let me um, close in prayer and uh, invite us once more to continue to walk this path of obedience. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Torah, who is the fulfillment of the law. And it is not that the law was not good, it is beautiful, and it brings order, and it brings beauty and harmony into human life. But the problem is with us and our hearts to obey, to walk faithfully every day. And so we give you thanks for your son, Jesus, who puts a face to Torah and makes Torah not just a set of directions, but makes Torah personal, makes your life, your guidance personal. He invites us to, faith, to have faith in him as he comes to live in us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. And if, if any of you have, have a sense that there is something in your life that you're not walking obediently with Jesus, and there are places in your life where you think, Jesus is not so proud of me here, I invite you to commune with him, to receive forgiveness from him, to offer up to you that aspect of your life or that area of your life. And maybe you don't know Jesus and you've not received him in faith. You've wrestled with this question of who is Jesus. I invite you to trust and believe that he is who he says he is. And he will show you. He will be with you. He will show you a life of abundance. Lord, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.